So I'm dedicating this episode to all the black journalists out there, especially the black women who are journalists. Navigating British newsrooms can be very difficult knowing that the majority of them are populated by white middle-class people. And in the UK, there's only about 0.2% who are actually black journalists, which is insane. And the fact that it hasn't really increased over the last couple of years is very telling. So I just wanted to encourage you all and let you know that your voices matter, your stories matter, and your inquisitive eye is very much needed. I'm your host, Yolante Fowhidmi, a journalist who advocates for innovation and storytelling, and this is Black Prose, a podcast where black writers talk amongst themselves. Adi Onibada is a journalist, host, producer, and was previously an internet culture reporter at BuzzFeed News UK. She has also worked at The Voice newspaper, which is Britain's only black national newspaper. She coins herself as a problem solver and just knows how to get the job done. If you had to debunk all the myths of journalism, because I think sometimes journalism looks very glamorous yeah, and very exciting, but because we're in it, yeah, what would you say are like the five things you would like to debunk to people to let them realise that this is not what you think it is? Oh, that's hard because there's certain aspects that I'm like, do you know what, that's true for some and it's absolutely not the truth for other people. So for instance, money. There are people who still kind of lament over the fact that um, Carrie Bradshaw was getting $4.50 her word at Vogue and it's like that's some people see those salaries and think oh my gosh that's crazy and you know I remember at certain times I have peers who were earning significantly less than me um, and we were doing the same thing in essence so yeah there's definitely some disillusion like with the money and that's the irony as well at the start of this journey I remember an editor sitting down to me she's like do not do journalism for the money there is no money there and come full circle I did make at first I made very little money like <laughs> as in please sir can I have some more like bowl in hand I made very little money at the start and then slowly ascended and I started to make actually really good money um, back to the point about more money than some people that I know and now we're back in that space where they're saying there's no more money in the industry like unfortunately this is how this is the going rate for certain roles and you're like now it <laughs> like I've, de- I've definitely made more than that in that aspect um the hours I think some people think that like being a journalist is just like free parties and mingling etc mm-hmm. etc et no sometimes it's you're missing the parties because you've got a deadline you're missing family functions or things that matter to you because you know there's a breaking there's a breaking news story and you have to be on it for instance a monarch like dying yeah do you think you can turn around to be your editor be like, hey i've got tickets for dlt i'm gonna see you guys get like wait a minute. Get, get back to your laptop get on your zooms start calling around like 500 words by 3 p.m and and I get it because sometimes I do think some journalists do a good job at editorialising the lifestyle. So the people do see and think, oh, they get to go to this for free. And no, there is always a trade-off. There is nothing. That is the, the, the free tickets are never just really free tickets. Exactly. You have to write about uh, it maybe. Yeah, literally. Sometimes you have to write about it. You have to report on it. You have to, you have to do social media. And, and there are times when you just don't want to do that. There are people who think that you need to have studied journalism to get into journalism. I did not till this day. I do not have a formal journalism qualification. I studied politics at the University of Bristol because somehow I thought I was going to end up, if not a lawyer, then at least a politician or something in that remit. Everything that 
brought me to this point was kind of by accident, but also by design. Um, and it happened as it was intended to happen. But if there was anyone out there who's thinking that I don't have this and I don't have that, how can I do that? I'm doing it or I've done it. So it's clearly doable. Um, and just thinking that, you know, there isn't space for you in a newsroom. There is. Sometimes you've got to bully your way in. You've got to come big shoulders and make space for yourself. But I, I think it's important that especially for young black and brown aspiring reporters out there to know that just because it doesn't look like there is space for you doesn't mean that you can't make space for yourself. Some spaces are harder to crack, but somebody's got to do it first, ultimately. So if it can be you, why not? Like, why not let it be you? I love that. Yeah. So when do you think you first felt like a writer? I've thought about this question because I've heard you ask other people. And it's so funny because I'm like, I, I, I knew I was other things before I realised I was a writer. I think I landed on thinking of myself as a writer, like, last. I knew I was a speaker. I knew I was an orator. I knew I was an interviewer. I knew I was a storyteller. I think it wasn't until somebody called me a writer that I was like, me? Okay, I guess I am a writer. And that was around the time where... Like I said, by design, all of these things were happening quite accidentally in a space that I essentially only really went for vibes, pizza and free Wi-Fi. Um, and this was a, a project in Brixton, where I'm from, where I grew up, called Liberty. Um, and they had a youth-based publication called Live Magazine. And I would go there for the editorial meetings, which were just literally huddles of young people talking about the things that matter to them. And I went from reading the publication because it was distributed freely to now being in the room where they discuss what would go into it. It was very much a project of like, oh, I think we should do this. Or I would really like to read a story about this. And someone was like, yeah, why don't you write it? Like, if you're here, then, you know, you must be a writer. And I was just like, okay, I'll give it a try. And, you know, seeing your name in print for the first time, I think I was like 18 or 19. And then seeing multiple, like, it's not your one essay that you submitted. No, it's a stack of copies that are now going to be read in colleges and secondary schools like you had read years before and that was the moment I was like okay I am a writer I'll, I'll wear that proudly along with the many list of things that I am why did you feel like you needed to see your name in print to sort of bring that home to make you realize you're a writer because I think that was when it felt real like it, it was an idea actualized and I think that's a lot of the time the difference between a lot of things in general it's like Oh, I'm a this. Okay, what's that in action? Oh, I'm 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 a painter. Where's the canvas? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm a illustrator. Where are the illustrations? Like, okay. I'm such a big believer in you have to put it into action. Whatever you call yourself, you have to put it into action. Show and prove, basically. Show up and prove. And for me, seeing my name in print. That for me in that moment was just like, yeah, no, I am what I said I am. I am what other people are calling me as well. So that, yeah, show and prove more than anything. And how did you manage to do that at The Voice newspaper? You had a meeting with the editor before you went for your mm. two-week internship. And yeah. they basically said, either sink or swim. Yeah. You have to be good or you're out sort of thing. Yeah. So when you were preparing, and that was like your first, would you say that's your first experience in the newsroom? Yes, yes. That was definitely my first experience in like a formal newsroom. And yeah, just as you said, I got a lunch interview style thing with 
the news editor at the time, shout out to Elizabeth Pears, who would go on to be, and still today in my life, like a mentor-like figure, um, also gave me my job at BuzzFeed subsequently. She asked me what I had been doing. I told her at that time I had Live magazine under my belt, so I wasn't coming empty-handed. Um, and I also was, I had just finished my politics degree as well. So again, for the most part, like all throughout my academic career, I was a big believer in utilizing my time very well. Like I really was like girl bossing way too close to the sun. Like summer holidays were not summer holidays for me. I was interning somewhere. I was working somewhere. I had interned at Mental Media, a production company, put in, working on documentaries, done more work with Live Magazine, anything I can get my hands to. So when I was in front of her, I wasn't coming empty-handed to beg for, for for an opportunity. I was coming with, you know, what I felt at the time or for my age at that time was a fairly decent amount of stories ex that had been executed, places I had worked, people that had vouched for me. And it was quite simple. She was like, you can come two weeks. If you're good, you can stay. If you're bad, you got to go. And I appreciate it. Like that was the real of it. Like this, this is a publication that is didn't have the most resources. And I had literally, by, again, divine <laughs> ordinance, because I had been hounding them for the longest time to get an opportunity. And it was only just by chance my friend's sister-in-law was, like, had been freelancing with them. And she was like, oh, I know the editor. Like, I will get her to have a chat with you at the bare minimum. And you've got to show up for yourself and, and follow through, because I can't help you past that. And that's what two weeks turned into two years um, a paid position eventually because at that time it wasn't a paid position that I got in yeah two weeks went into two years paid position front page stories so many interviews that I don't think I would have ever been allowed to do if I had been in another newsroom because they think you're too junior like no way we're letting you do that and yeah a lot of fun and a lot of lessons in the hustle of putting together a print publication because the, the Voice is a legacy black newspaper, the oldest running and I think still the only one standing um, 40 years later. What would you say goes into building a newspaper like that in terms of the day-to-day? -day? We worked in respective teams. So we had section editors. Um, I worked on the news desk directly under the uh, news editor. And, you know, it's, you're filling column inches, essentially, it's a it's an alchemy of like the business side they're selling half a page a quarter page an editorial spread um because that's the bread and butter of the business at that time at least that's what's keeping this publication going and it's you're being told okay cool we need to fill 500 pages by 1 p.m because it was always funny i'm trying to think i think it was tuesday we went to print Tuesday we went to print, Wednesday we'd get the physical copy and Thursday they were on stands in stores in the Tesco's and mainly in like communities that had high ethnic minority populations. So sometimes it'd be down to the wire, like, and it's not a big team. That was the thing that I would say we were doing there as a team, always punching above our weight. Very small team. There were times where you'd see my byline four, five, six times in that paper because I've written about a carnival happening in Bristol on one page. I've interviewed an up-and-coming singer on another page. I've written about this health scare with relaxers for black women on another page. I've even written a comment piece on, you know, youth engagement in or youth environmentalism in Nigeria on another page. Like, you're a machine and you need to get that filled so that there is something that will get on stands by Thursday morning. And you go again 
Like as soon as you guys wrap up one and it's like, whew, that's the last page sent to the printers, you go again and you're getting that layout and you're being, you're already seeing like these pages are already sold. This is what we need. And it's just, yeah, cyclical. How did you adjust to that, especially when you knew you had that two week probation period? Mm. How did you get used to that fast pace? I mean, you go in, I went in there. Let me not speak for everybody. I went in there hungry. So for me, I had a point to prove. And I already knew, like, I was trying to turn this two weeks into something because I think at the time I had quit my retail job and, you know, your friends are finding their feet in their graduate scheme jobs or in these really, like, cushy, like, decent jobs and you're trying to explain to your mum why her Russell Group graduate isn't, off working at a big four or you know doing a conversion doing her masters so this has to bang like this actually has to make sense so I went in there just hungry to prove myself with ideas I went in there I remember I think at the time I was like the youngest person in the office I came with a really distinct perspective like I'm British Nigerian I'm from South London all of those little identity markers play to my strength because as well the, the the readership or who the voice was trying to appeal to in part at the time spoke directly to my demographic. I think I was, what, 22 at the time? You know, a young audience, a young perspective who are interested. They like Afrobeats, but they also like politics. You know, they like to go out. They they, they represent, they're, they're, they're diverse and they're complex individuals. And I think on that point alone as well, because as well as contributing to the print publication, I was also writing for the online edition and we, that's where we were writing stories daily and keeping that populated, whether it's just like a quick take on a viral situation that's happened here or, you know, Beyonce's teaser new album. Give me 300 to 350 words on that in the next hour. Cool. Let me write that up and get Beyonce fan feedback. Like you're, you're working two pronged. Like you're thinking about the print, but you're thinking about the online. You're thinking about what can I do in this newsroom that nobody else can do? Like what is my superpower that makes my place here like makes me indispensable like after these two weeks you guys know you need me like I am worth keeping um that was the mindset that I went in there with so you then moved on to BuzzFeed not straight away oh so what was the next oh child <laughs> what was next oh my gosh no not straight away because even while I was there again the, the point that I made earlier re- with regards to money um Money became a, a very, very contentious situation. Um, and again, people had been quite honest and saying, oh, you know, you don't do journalism for the money. And I was like, I hear it, but money I have to make. Like I, at that time, I was very much in a space where it's like I need to make money and I also need to balance the requirements of this job. So I was doing a lot of like stuff on the side still. Like I was doing stuff on the side producing. Um, I was freelancing. I got jobs or I got like I do like shifts I got commissioned by Cosmopolitan to do it was amazing as well because this is again like the the, Twitter's really becoming that space at at that time as well where people are putting themselves out there and getting opportunities and one of the stories I'd written for The Voice had gotten the attention of an editor at Cosmopolitan magazine and that was the first time where I was like okay so I can get paid like this like I think I got like 800 pounds for a six-page spread based on... Um, Parties. Yes. So racism at British nightclubs. And this was off the back of the reporting I had done on 
a club in, in central London called District. That was a whole situation. We were the first people to write that story before it became a whole thing and people were protesting outside it. Um, but that got me, and I remember getting £800 and full disclosure, at that time, I was getting £1,200 a month at The Voice and I've just been given £800 to write, you know... One story. One story. So I'm, I start toying with the idea of like, will I be better served going freelance um, and I, I also wrote for Red Bull and other pu publications, again, contacts that I had made from Liberty. They were super instrumental in plugging me in different opportunities. So whether it was just like a quick comment piece here, Huffington Post, this, like I was just doing any sort of public, like writing that I could do to kind of supplement my income. And I was also venturing into other areas. So I started doing some producing on YouTube shows, factual stuff. I was doing PR for my friend, Josh, um, on his, our friend Josh Bridge, who owns a production company. Uh, he was doing films. I was doing PR for House Party, Handle With Care. Wow. Um, we went to college together. So I had pitched myself like, yeah, I can do this. I can do that. So I was, I was doing everything and anything to supplement my income, but also to diversify my skill set. And at the time when I left the voice i didn't have a job lined up um what made you want to leave then <laughs> whoa okay <laughs> i'll uh, like i'll answer this as diplomatically as possible because i've never really spoken about it because i've always made the the personal decision to not as some people say stay on code and I, just because i just didn't feel like it served anybody to talk in that in those terms, if a young person reached out to me directly and said, hey, I'm thinking about doing this, what are your thoughts? I'd give them my real opinion. Like I said, money was a contentious issue. Um, at the time I had left, there were a lot of structural changes. And ultimately, I just felt like the situation no longer benefited me. I was on the verge of burnout before we knew what burnout was. That's the other thing that they don't talk about much, especially in a black newsroom. And especially if it feels like the news agenda generally is heavily weighted towards more negative stories than there are the feel-good stories. And you're repeatedly writing about the same things with no no progress whether it's the police brutality the deaths in custody home office immigration deaths in detention that stuff starts to weigh on you and if you're the go-to person or it feels like that consistently falls on your shoulders to write that as well started to become quite burdensome and just as in general a difference in opinion over direction of where the publication was going that when it when I had the decision to make, it just it became very clear that I did not have a future there. And with the structural changes in that quite a few of my colleagues, friends were also leaving at the same time, it just made sense to depart at that point in time. Um and I remember my mum was like, You mean to tell me you quit your job without having another job lined up? What do you say to us? I mean, the reality was like, I'm not gonna I won't die. And I had enough confidence in my ability to know that this wasn't going to last long. And that's that's on me. Because, like I said, money I have to make. But I'd be foolish if I thought staying longer would change my circumstance. It wasn't going to. So at that point in time, it definitely felt like it's a, the, the timing made sense. And I basically took a bit of a detour. And... I think I left around November 
And by December, a friend of mine had contacted me and said, oh, you know, his company's looking for somebody to handle social media and like their comms. And I ended up taking that role when I got back. I was like, cool, I'm on a bit of a hiatus for now. I will check back in with you come January. So January started and I basically ended up in the space that brought together all of my skill set, my love of politics, young people, media, social media, working with the most interesting people. And that's how I ended up running youth campaigns to get young people registered to vote at the time of, I believe it was the 2017 general elections. And I did that for a year and we were working in like trying to lobby parliament to change laws on how young people register to vote when they go off to university. We did a big takeover at Twitter to do a whole campaign around voter registration drives. Like I did so much interesting stuff in that time uh, in youth advocacy and politics and media that at that time I felt like I needed a break from journalism more than anything and it was off the back of that so I was out of journalism for about a year and a bit Um, I did a bunch I just did a bunch of other things really and then it was when I saw the job role for BuzzFeed come up at the same time I'd also become a little bit distanced from journalism and I remember telling my friend I'm going to apply for a bunch of jobs. And if I don't get any of them, I think I'm going to call it a day. Really? Yeah, yeah. And I remember it wasn't until after she was like, you know, when you called me that day and you said that I was super sad. And I was like, why? And she was like, because I really feel like this is what you're meant to be doing. And I was like, I hear that. That's sweet. But (laughs) (laughs) that's a big vow to make, though. Honestly, I try not to. I'm, I'm a stubborn person, but I also try to. I pay attention to what's going on around me. And the industry has never, ever, for me, exactly been the most warm and embracing place for black reporters. Um, So this wasn't, for me, worth me being broke, miserable. Like, when when you line it up, my love for this industry didn't outweigh the love I have for myself. And with that in mind... If there isn't a space for me in this industry that I can make or if all the signs are saying this just ain't it, I believe in pivoting. I believe in the power of pivoting. Doesn't mean that I won't be in the media space, but as far as journalism was concerned, I was ready to put a pin in that, go I was ready to go put my suit on, put on a free piece, head to Canary (laughs) Wharf, make some money. And then, you know, who knows? I might start a publishing car. I had had like an alternative reality all mapped out where it's like, if this doesn't go this way, then I'm going to do this. And I'm going to go get my money up, get my contacts up, carry on doing this because I still had friends who were in the industry. Um, But at that time, I remember applying for three distinct journalism jobs. And I was like, if I don't get any one of these three, I'm done. I got an offer from Channel 4 and I got an offer from BuzzFeed at the same time, which then threw me in a conundrum because first I was like, whoa. Whoa. (laughs) Yeah, whoa. whoa. (laughs) (laughs) Me, a homie. The third one, funnily enough, was Good Morning Britain. Um, (laughs) And I still laugh about that whole situation because I turned up to the interview. Bear in mind that they're in like West London. I live in South. So I've left my house at a certain hour to get there. I remember they were asking me my thoughts on that morning's episode. And I was like, I'm not going to lie, I didn't watch, watch it. it. But I can tell you about yesterday's episode. <laughs> and I remember in the feedback, they were like, we were really surprised that you hadn't watched the show. I was like, 
I don't know what you want me to say and like, I can't <laughs> lie but yeah so like spoiler alert I didn't get that job but yeah I got Channel 4 and I got BuzzFeed and I was really really unsure at that time because taking the Channel 4 job would then divert me into a different space in journalism that was for dispatches it was to be a trainee and it would have kind of kick-started me working as um working in documentary television field um after a lot of deliberation, I ended up taking the BuzzFeed job for various reasons. But I still did the training at Channel 4 because I'm a maniac, clearly. I used all of my PTO to do the training days that I could with Channel 4. Okay. It, yeah, it, it, was a, it was a very scatty setup. and some, But somehow I managed to make it work and I got some really good experience in in there i didn't work at a production company which was the other part of the role so half the role was you do training and the other half would be you'd be positioned at a production company and paid to work with them and it was quite funny because part of me then starts to think did i get offered the role because of the particular documentary they were producing at the time um which was about like gun violence and all these okay. hood guys and i'm like <laughs> Do you guys think like me and them would have a rapport? Like I'd, I'd be able to, like you think I'm I'm, I'm the hood hood whisperer? Like I, I don't know, um, but yeah, it was it was an interesting time in my life where I felt very reaffirmed. Where I was like, okay, I made my little cheeky comment to God, and God was like, bet if I'm saying if this is where you're gonna be, this is where you're gonna be. And yeah, that that was four and a half, nearly five years ago. Wow. So you went to BuzzFeed? Yeah. And then you've now recently left BuzzFeed. That's correct. But I want to talk a little bit more about what happened within BuzzFeed and what you mentioned earlier about the love that this in- industry has for black people mm. and black women and your experience in newsrooms. Mm. What was your experience like in a British newsroom as a black woman? I will start by saying I've been quite privileged and I've also been quite particular And there's never been necessarily an urgency on my part to say I've got a job just to say I've got a job. I've passed up or just disregarded many a roles because I know I don't want to put myself in that environment. So I'm not even trying to test. I'm not even trying to test it. And I was very particular, even when it came down to choosing between one job or the other. Part of the reason why I did go to BuzzFeed in the first place was because I knew I had bona fide allies that one was was an undisputed fact. I had bona fide allies in that two of their like core black editors were both voice newspaper alumni who were my people, as in they like have always had my back, had my back for the entire time that I was there. Like spoiler alert, like th- there was very few things that were happening at a high level that once they knew that they weren't telling me or they weren't giving me a heads up. Like yo, this is happening, and that to me is more valuable than anything than any knowledge that you might think you can acquire because I think some people think you can like knowledge yourself or skill yourself through this industry to the top cap that's bull I agree yeah that's bull you can accolade yourself to loneliness to isolation you can uh, that stuff don't mean nothing if you don't have allies if you don't have people who will speak up for you in rooms where decisions are getting made or you know, at least advocate for you. You need you need allies and advocates to to if you want to last long in this industry. You can absolutely be in this industry on your own talent and on, on your own merit. 
But if you want to thrive in this industry, I think one of the first things I would say is like start looking around for allies. And that that works on two layers. There are those who are your peers, who and which I'm really grateful I also have as well. That I have my people who let me know what's going on in their newsrooms. And I'm like, say less. I'm not even going to waste. Yeah, noted. <laughs> I'm not even going to waste the email. I don't want to be so arrogant to think that the way that they've done you, they won't do me. So I'm not going to give you the chance to do to do that to me. <laughs> um, and, and I've benefited from that on that level. And then on a senior level, it's the people who are, have been here a little bit longer than you. And they've been in th- these rooms longer than you. And they that they have this valuable knowledge and they just speak up for you. And you know that at the bare minimum, anything they say to you, even if it's critical, it's not I'm not their competition. Like to them, they see me as the next gen. So they've never they've shown me nothing but love. So I'm I always say like I'm always grateful to people like Dion Grant, um, Elizabeth Pears, Kieran Yates. Um, Nels Abbey like just people who I've shared this space with that are a bit older than me and I've also always like dropped wisdom and support and they told me yeah don't go there like, yeah they're going to try and lowball you if they told you that's how much they're lying like this is how much they've got on the table you can't buy that knowledge you just can't places like BuzzFeed as well from the outside looking in I had seen that they had a track record of having black women who have also gone on to thrive and they gave them voices and let them be themselves. So that as well filled me with a sense of confidence that I can go to this place and I don't have to drop all of me at the doorstep. Like I can walk in and be mostly myself. Don't get me wrong. Your editor still might give you a nudge and give you like, yeah, we're cool, but don't be that cool with these people. Like these, some of these people are not your friends. Like they'll, like that kind of real talk that some people don't get in newsrooms, I can always say I've, I've benefited from having what would you say because I feel like your experience as a black woman in a newsroom has in my opinion I think it's been good to an extent it's been more good than bad but okay that's not to say that hasn't been bad okay there's been bad and I think but and I'll probably say that some of the bad got more prevalent the pandemic onwards because of how things shifted so I lost my manager that I spoke so highly of because of business decisions, which meant that BuzzFeed News UK, which was the specific desi- division that I was hired to work for, ended up being closed down. I then ended up being shuffled to BuzzFeed News, which is now just which is a US entity, and my manager's in New York. And then that manager then moves to a different team, so I get a new manager. And then it, it's that kind of situation where it's like, okay, the dynamics keep changing, and simultaneously you're. You're you're existing in a world historical defining moment. I feel like not a lot of journalists talk about that time period. I had friends who were like, um, what was it, furloughed, right? So I had friends who were furloughed or maybe, you know, this is closed, I can't, I'm not doing that anymore. Or this isn't to bemoan having a job at that time. But sometimes there were moments I went from writing covid obituaries like that was one of the first assignments that like, oh this person has died this is like one of the first black people to die can you like track down their family and have a conversation writing covid obituaries and speaking to people who've lost people and i think in total i must have written like a dozen obituaries so that's multiple conversations with family members members of somebody who've who, who, and they've lost somebody and then i went from there that to reporting live from Black Lives Matter protests in London and chasing down John Boyega for an interview and but also seeing 
something as traumatizing as a black man being murdered on camera and that being broadcast all over the internet and we're meant to synthesize that and synthesize this moment while also feeling that double burden of like, oh, wow, when we're actually like the only black people in this newsroom. Not that the responsibility falls on you in a formal sense, but there is a, a weight in the newsroom. For us, it's like, you have to feed the, the content machinery and time just keeps going and time just keeps going. And don't get me wrong, like every place really tries their hardest, whether it's like mental health days or, you know, we've got this app that you guys all have free subscription to and you have access to a therapist and et cetera, et cetera. But, but you're working these relenting hours and telling these stories and it just doesn't really stop. Um, that's more so industry-wide than it is necessarily in this specific organisation. Yeah, in that specific mm. organization at the time, if that makes any sense. Cause, yeah. Because one thing about me, I feel I have no qualms about going to HR. So tread carefully with me. But does HR work? Spaces. No, that's a good point. But I have no qualms with defending myself. Maybe that's what I should say. I have no qualms with speaking up. Like I'm not, especially in the in the in the workplace, I am not an advocate of eat shit. Like I'm not. There are some people who the 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 chosen or the preferred method in these spaces is just so you just take it like you just take it you eat shit like it's part of you want to be in this industry grow tough skin eat shit like you keep moving and no it's not it's not my personal strategy I'm like oh we're all gonna get in the mud together <laughs> like <laughs> like so but for the most part like I've never really had too many situations. Like, more times disagreements have been work-based rather than they have been, like, oh, you're talking crazy directly to me and my race and my gender are a factor. So what would you say, looking at the industry now, because you mentioned how it was during, that like, COVID times and right up until now, so, there's, like, loads of redundancies, mm, there's now AI, mm, there's now, like, influencers doing the roles of journalists, mm, and journalists are kind of being put aside because maybe they haven't got the same amount of followers or reach or engagement. Yeah. Like, if we had to look at the industry now, what are your thoughts? And would you encourage other people to actually get into it now? Oh, well, that's... Follow your dreams, kids. <laughs> <laughs> that's the thing. I'll never tell anybody not to pursue what they think is their purpose. Because if I tell you not to, I promise you it's going to itch you until you scratch it. Like, it, it, you will not feel satisfied in any path you walk if that if you feel like your purpose is here. So, realistically, you just have to, you, you actually just have to get, get your, roll up your sleeves and get stuck in. That's when you find yourself where you're at and you're like, okay, cool. This is my bag. This is, this is where I'm at. This is what my bag looks like. This is what the table before me looks like. I'm working in this space and this part, whether it's like, I'm a, I'm a sports journalist and I'm working at the daily... I'm not going to name names. <laughs> I'm, I'm working at this place and I'm. this is what, can I endure? Am I ready to eat shit? Or am I going to say, you know, actually, I've seen what they've done at Arsenal Fan TV. I'm leaving. I'm going to start my own thing. I'm going to hire a couple of my friends with cameras. We're going to do our own sports media. I think even in those circumstances, creativity can be bred. I think the traditional way, as we've known it, has broken. And even when I talk, say traditional, I'm still thinking of, I'm thinking explicitly of digital media because I think that's where we've seen a lot of the the breakdowns and the hemorrhaging of jobs 
and just this influx of like super talented people who are essentially now on the jobs market. Like every time I come on Twitter, I just see another tweet like, hey guys, I'm one of those people that I'm just like, jam man, another one bites the dust. It's bleak, but I think it's also the opportunity for people to get super creative about solutions. And I'm also mindful of like, it's bleak on one side, but in other parts of the world, and I speak specifically as a, a, a British Nigerian of the diaspora, I look to what they're doing in Nigeria, whether it's Native Mag, Zokoko, The Republic, who are just getting started. Like they're still babies in this digital media thing. And they have, in terms of their the, the potential audience, like we're talking about a continent that how I'm thinking like 60% are under the age of 35, like with phones in hand. Exciting things are happening if you shift the lens. It's very easy to see a snapshot in one part of the world and assume that everything's going to flames. And when all you need to do is actually just pivot and look, shift the lens and look elsewhere, exciting things are happening in other places, um, which gives me hope as well that just because they're moving at different paces, even how we think of media, how we think of journalism, you know, needs to be re reframed and, and what stories are being told. That's what we're constantly trying to train ourselves to do or to be enthused about telling stories elsewhere, outside of our wheelhouse, outside of our comfort zone. So, yeah, on that side, things definitely look bleak, but that's not the full picture is what I'd say. The picture is much bigger. You just need to step, take a step further back to look at it all. Have you ever felt like giving up or like letting go of journalism? Yes, girl. <laughs> Absolutely. And you know when you got your when you were told that you're being made redundant, is that a thought that came to mind? Like how did you actually how have you actually processed all of that right up until now? Because sometimes <laughs> I always wonder like that's why sometimes I message like how like how have you managed to keep yourself afloat? I mean, like we'll talk one of the things my mentor said to me was don't leave until BuzzFeed pays you to leave. So there was that. I have survived three, maybe four rounds of redundancies since I started at BuzzFeed in 2018. It almost became an annual thing. So I wasn't phased by it per se. There was that moment where I was like, oh crap, that's us. Because you get the email. How it typically goes is an email comes through. Oh no, tell a lie, roll it back. Sometimes you go on Twitter and you see some other publication has published that this is happening and you're like, wait, what? And then you run to your inbox or you run to Slack and then you see the, the message from the head honchos, the big bosses, you know, difficult decisions, really sorry, we're looking to make some reductions. You see percentages and because you kind of you can't really take it in because it's all a bit of a blur at the time. And you're like, cool, 35 percent, this this department. OK. And you prepare to say your goodbyes. And, you know, you know, then you're, you're all pulled to like some sort of town hall meeting. And love know, town halls. Oh, super sad CEO. Really sad that this is happening. And we're so sad because we're a family. We're not a family. Stop that right now. And you charge it because it's the nature of the industry. I think when it finally fell and it was us, the, again, just the honest truth is I'd wanted to leave, but I had been thinking about leaving anyway. This was this is the longest job I've ever had. I've typically been like a two, two and a half years tops and bounce for new challenges, new opportunities, more money, just a diff difference, change. But with the pandemic, like the pandemic happened two years into my job and then you almost just felt grateful to have a job. And they, when you didn't know what was going on, 
you ride it out. And I remember wanting to leave last year, asking around, talking to people. One of the jobs that I was interested in, that I, because again, I'm, I still think I believe I have earned the right to be selective. Like I don't believe it in having a job just to say I have a job. And better that, I'll just go to go get JSA. I don't know. Like, I mean, I'll just firm it. But rather than say, because I need a job, I will work at... That's why when people be, say, oh, it's not my fault I work at the redacted. You know, some of us need a job. And I'm like, trust me. Trust... I don't come from wealth. I come from a single-parent household. I'm the oldest of four kids. But I still have to be selective in where I choose to work because my mental health is at risk. My, the future of myself in this industry is at risk. My integrity is on the line. So I make tough calls. So on the rare occasion that I do see a job that I'm interested in, I'm like, okay, cool, this speaks to me. And I remember seeing a job at Netflix for Strong, at Strong Black Lead, uh, and it was meant to be in the UK. And I remember reaching out to Gina Moore, shout out to Gina Moore, and um, talking to her about it. And then within weeks, that whole thing was gone. Yeah, I remember yeah. that. It just yeah. disappeared. Yeah, they, they made cuts. They, they, they were part of the people that got cut. And that should have been like a telltale sign of what was to come. Um, so I'd been wanting to leave. I had looked around. I had spoken to people. The market wasn't looking great. The, the, the offerings wasn't looking fantastic either. So what I had done in that time instead was like, okay, cool. I just need to go back to diversifying because that's the same. What I had stopped doing was spreading myself so thin where it's like, because you're getting paid enough, like, why should I come and die and do 45 different jobs just to stay on top of things? It, it didn't make sense. So for me at that time, point in time, I was like, I'm just going to do my job. But then when it became clear that at least emotionally it wasn't enough, on a challenge level it wasn't enough, that's when I started being like, okay, cool, I can go back to, like, maybe doing interviews and doing hosting or doing some PR consulting or doing some social media consulting, doing more production and that's when I started head, like pivoting back into doing that. So ultimately, I remember the, the morning of our redundancies, it was quite funny. My editor called me and she was like, hey, just a heads up that this is going to happen. But I think we're good. Like, I think it's something in the business department, et cetera. And I'm like, OK, cool. Again, it's just like another Tuesday to me. And I remember looking in Slack and I think somebody wrote, oh, shit. And I'm just like, what's happened? And um Someone messaged me, they were like, check your inbox and check the email. Uh, and lo and behold, message from the CEO, super sorry, really upset, difficult decisions, blah, blah, blah. The decision to close BuzzFeed News. And I'm like, wait, that's us. As in all of us. Oh, wild. And I'm like, now I get the oh shit. Because I too was now in a stage of oh shit. Yeah. Um, honestly, for like the first hour, I kind of just laughed because I was just like, do you know what? In all scenarios, this is probably the best scenario that could happen for two things. One, you don't leave empty-handed. Two, I think there's always, not everybody would admit to it, and I can only speak for myself, I felt like if I had left at a particular point in time, there would always be that, you know when you miss your ex? Or yeah. maybe you don't. Well, I don't. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. Some people don't miss their exes. <laughs> or oh, you, you miss... A pair of jeans. Let's say a good pair of jeans. You miss, but you had to throw them away because they're, they're no longer, but you miss how they fit. And now you're wearing new jeans and they're so stiff and they just don't hit the way those old jeans. So there was always that fear that I could go somewhere else and I'm looking back thinking, man, life was so good and so easy. I had all the snacks that a girl could want. I had the freedom to write what I wanted to write about. 
you know, my editor was super cool, super chilled, really supportive. And she was in New York, so I always had a head start. Like, as far as working conditions were going, nobody was dragging me into the office because everybody's, like, there's only, like, three of us here. I was always fearful that I would regret leaving if I left at a particular point in time. Now, nothing's there, so I don't worry about that feeling <laughs> at all. I'm like... It's gone. It doesn't exist anymore. And that is just another chapter in my life that has come and has gone. You process it in bits. Because even after, for like the first week, two weeks, maybe a month, I just thought I was on annual leave. Like in my head, I'm like, at some point I have to go back to work. And here I am like nearly three months later and it's like, oh no, you're not going back to work. But again, honestly, I'm so grateful because the same way that I talk about those allies, advocates, peers, friends on both levels, for those above you and those standing alongside you, so many were so supportive. So many people reached out. So many people were like, I know somebody at the Metro. Do you want to do shift work? What do you want to do next? Is there anyone I can introduce you to? Any calls I can make? Like having that also reaffirmed me because I'm like, maybe I, I am who I think I am. So that in itself, like all the people that were so quick to just offer me like an ear support and there's not a single person who has said to me, man, that's tough. Like, but everybody said, you're going to be fine. Like, you're actually going to be good. It's it's time. You don't want to leave. God said it's done. And I always talk about the whole situation as like, I'm I'm a believer, like faith really matters to me. I always talk about it as Jonah and the whale. And just kind of like that stubbornness. I wanted to leave. I didn't leave because I'm still dragging my feet. You're comfortable. You're complacent. It's kushti. Uh, but you have an assignment. Like there is more for you to do. But you keep insisting that you're not going to do it. And then God puts you in the belly of a whale. That job became my whale. Now I'm out of it. So we move forward really and truly. And how did you actually go about diversifying your skills and your like did you reach out to people because I know people always speak about pivoting and diversifying mm. their skills but people don't actually know how to do that mm. so how have you gone about doing that now even when you look at well, when I look at your career I feel like there's different points where your skills are always being reaffirmed yeah. and it's always from maybe something you've done I don't know it could be a couple of years prior and then that person remembers you like what how have you managed to kind of sort of sustain your career in that way I think that's quite rare if I'm being honest with you I think because, like I had said in the beginning, I knew I was so many other things before I knew I was a writer, before I knew I was a news reporter. And I always knew I was always, I always existed as this multi-dimensional person. Like before I we started calling people multi-hyphenates, like I just knew I was a girl that does a lot of stuff and can do a lot of stuff. And as I try at least to do a lot of stuff very, very well. Like I know people talk about the master, jack of all trades, master of none, but even that quote has more to it. And I always knew that it would serve me better to be a master of many. That for me was the middle ground. I want to be a master of many. I started writing because I was writing speeches because I was an orator. I was on the debate team. I would do a lot of public speaking. And as we've spoken about, like, what it takes to be a journalist is, like, natural nosiness. Like, as our parents, I don't know if your mum ever called you busybody. Like, my mum's favorite used to be, like, you're a busybody. <laughs> and, and I was, because I always wanted to know what was going on. Yeah. Like, I always wanted to be kept in the loop, like, what's going on? And ultimately, that coupled with, let's say, that time when I was in my first journalism job, not making a lot of money, 
I was in a space where I'm like, I need to make more money. What other skills do I have that can make me more money, realistically, that are not as demanding as my journalism job? Ideally, stuff that comes easier to me. So jumping on or hosting or presenting or giving a PR consultation to someone, be like, listen, I know journalism very well because I get press releases all the time. Here's what you need to do. Here's an example of a press release. Do you want to... I can... At one point, I was writing press releases for £50 a pop. Like, if you've got a project, I will write you a two-page press release, £50. There's so many people that I'm such big fans of because I see them now, today, and they're big megastars. Once upon a time, they had minimal budgets and they were DIY netting and I was just on hand to be like, I will write your press release for your new play. I will write your press release for your web series. I will write your press release for your EP. Um, or do, do you need like a media person? I'm that girl. Like I was always looking for skills that I could pretty much build people for. And it has served me well because pretty much everybody that I've worked with will say, you came through solid for me. At that time, either you made me look more professional than I actually was, you made me believe in myself more than, believe in my thing more than I actually believed in my thing. And that reputation has carried me and I have great friendships. And now when I say I can do stuff, I have evidence. I have the people that will vouch for me. I show up and I, I show up and prove, I show and prove. And I speak up for myself as well. Like in certain instances, um, like my... I hosted for BET a screening. My friend made that show. And she could have easily have Dating Black UK on YouTube now if you haven't seen it. I'm also in season one, yes, but I'm is. not the same girl that I was back then. <laughs> Honestly, I'm not even I don't even wear that wig anymore. So I've, <laughs> I've changed um somewhat. Um but like even then I literally just said to my friend, Oh, let me host the screening. And she was like, Are you for real? And I'm like, Yeah. She was like, Okay, I'll let BET handle that. And she she spoke up for me and they were like, cool, she can do it. And they had seen me in season one as well, thankfully. So they were cool with it as well. Paid me, did that. Somebody who came to that was like, hey, we've got this thing coming. Would, would you be interested in hosting it? I'm like, cool. And, and that's just like one aspect. Sample, yeah. yeah, that's just one sample. And other aspects, people I've interviewed, works with, etc. Show and prove more than anything, I will always say is what serves people. If you're looking for ways to like pivot a you just you actually just have to do it sometimes and doing it doesn't have to mean that you've got to do it on a massive scale sometimes doing it in small incremental ways starts to build up a bigger picture and people then start to believe you when you say i can do this as well i'm talented in this but i can also do this and uh, but you actually have to show your work in you have to show the evidence of it is it anyone's career that you're jealous of no really yeah it's so funny because i've been talking about jealousy and envy for yeah. like the last like 24 48 hours because of some random viral tweet and one thing I'm super grateful for is like I've never really really battled like jealousy and envy are just not not feelings that I feel often you might see something and be like oh I wish I had that but not to the point of someone's career because I don't know what you do behind the scenes and I don't know if me in that position that would look like that so if that makes any sense yeah that makes sense like it, it really is one of those like almost like butterfly effects things coupled with like assumption which I just think is actually quite destructive I have plenty of people's careers that I admire if anything it shows me what's achievable 
I'm always grateful because I'm like, I barely even scratched the surface. Some of the people with the most banging careers, I'm grateful to say they're my friends. And as I have said, when I talk about like envy, jealousy, etc., I always say, for me, the love is louder than that feeling. That feeling at best might be a hum, but I'm singing my friend's praises. I'm singing with love because I'm so inspired that, but I'm, and more times I'm like, hey, your success is my success. Like, I get to shine with you yeah. by default. Like, if you're shining, I'm shining. I don't operate from a place of lack and wanting. So, yeah, no one's career per se. So this next section is called Writing Rituals, where I speak to you or ask you about your writing habits, your writing style, and just the things that you love and hate about writing in general. And I think because your background is a lot of news reporting, I think the best place to start is... What makes a good news story? There has to be a degree of, and probably one of my biggest peeves in in journalism <laughs> uh, is this reporting for reporters' sake. What do you mean by that? Writing stories where your audience is primarily other journalists, if that makes sense, and not everyday people. And treating the entire industry as like, this kind of competitive like I used to hate when journalists would be like scoop like <laughs> sorry <laughs> I know for exclusive a scoop in capital letters bro I'd be like I'm like chill like I get it like it's, some people treat it as an accolade to be able to say they got it first but get it right and I want to see sometimes there are certain stories I want to see 50 versions of that story sometimes for instance you know black maternal death one big feature does not make a groundbreaking change to an ongoing systemic issue if that makes sense yeah i want to see this publication right about it. i want that publication right about it. and that publication i want you i want it to be continuously reported on until there is change because that's what in my opinion journalism is meant to do i want to see multiple stories multiple sources like I want different people to talk to different um hospital I'm I'm just using that as one example. No, I understand. I think I've never been a fan of this idea of this like one story belonging to one place and one voice having like resounding power and authority on it because then that that journalist is forever tied to that. Other journalists feel like, well, if I'm not going to write it to that, that standard, then I might as well not touch. I'm like, no, 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 no. This is this is about people. I believe journalism is a service to the everyday person, not to your fellow journalists. Like, I always find it quite cringe. cringe. Yeah, it's cringe. It makes me cringe, <laughs> definitely. Good reporting. I'm always, I'm obsessed with nuance. Like my editor always used to say, like, I'm obsessed with nuance and details. Like, I, I am always going to, I want to fact check until I can fact check no more. And literally the only thing that stops me fact checking even more is a deadline. Um, because I'm really keen to get it right. Because I know how obtuse people can be. And you get one thing wrong and it unravels your entire story. And nobody cares anymore about the, the, the actual essence of it. Because one fact can derail the conversation. Are there other dynamics or dimensions to this story that, I'm missing because I have my own blind spots. We as humans have our own blind spots. And that's why we talk about diversity in the newsroom. Even in assuming that I, as a black woman, can tell your story because you're another black woman is, for me, already I've stepped on the wrong note. I'm 
very big on taking the time to understand and sensitively and properly echo back to the readers so that they can get a sense of that. They don't have to be long as well. Don't not necessarily don't bore the readers, but like sometimes get to the point. Outside of your journalism, do you do any other writing like for fun? Like you do for yourself? Girl, no. Really? So you just do like the journalism and you stick to that? Okay, actually, tell a lie. I write poems, short poems on my notes. Okay. Yeah. Actually, secret you do want to share. Yeah, no, do you know what? It's because I put it so far back into my mind. And more times it's when certain words or certain sentences will not leave me alone. So I have to write it down and it's connected to a feeling. So I do have like a collection of random note, Apple Notes poetry. Do you think you ever publish them? Or never. Sh- never say never. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I if I do it, you must know this. I'm I'm strapped for cash. If I publish that, it's because I'm strapped for cash. <laughs> okay, I like that. But I feel like having those other outlets always help anyway. Yeah. So, what would you say are your favourite pieces of journalism to write? Anything that relates to black culture and whatever weird and wonderful is happening on the internet. Do you do any writing exercises? No. Well, what kind of writing exercises are there? I literally just get to get it. To it. You spoke earlier about being an orator and you used to write speeches. Yeah. What would you say is the essence of writing a good speech? And do you still do that now? I think, at, so at the time, again, this is probably, I was always fascinated and this is probably why I was into politics. I'm fascinated by anybody that can grip a room. Anybody that opens their mouth and everybody's hanging on to their every word, I think that's a superpower. And I remember just wanting to have that as a power. And I think a lot of those things stay with you whether it's a pastor at the pulpit um you know a politician at the in, in sitting in Downing street or you know leaning over at prime minister's question time like i always <laughs> think of margaret thatcher and she's like this lady's not for turning and that becoming like this really strong slogan you know barack obama on the steps of the white house like these always have coincided with historical moments and i think it's about cadence rhythm your actual voice, like projection, intonation. Like it's really is a whole art form before you actually get down to the words. It is almost performance in itself. It's always quite funny because you see like these internet, you can tell who's trying to mimic those in (laughs) churches or like there was one video that went viral a couple months ago and he thought he was saying something so profound because he was doing the, he was kind of like mimicking the cadence and the internet, like emphasizing certain words, but he ain't said nothing. Nothing, <laughs> nothing of value. Nothing of value. But if, you ain't, if you're not paying attention, you might think he's saying something. So for me, like a good speech is that performance element and then ultimately it's the heart and soul of it is your words. What are you trying to leave with people? Are you trying to inspire them? Are you trying to give them hope? Are you trying to scare them? Are you trying to, sh- is it a sh- show of power? Are you trying to convince them? Are you trying to persuade them? Those are the things that I-, I found really interesting. And I think why I kind of gravitated towards like speeches and public speaking. Whose writing do you admire? I'm going to be biased and say Yomi Adegoke, just because that's my fellow South Londoner. The list is out now. Shameless plug. Out now. And just because even prior to her writing as a novelist, I love, I used to, I love and really do enjoy Yomi's comment pieces and her ability to synthesize like the conversations that are happening and just even all the cultural reference points that she will use. And it's always this kind of 
melting hodgepodge of things where you really have to have lived a certain life to get it. And but it's also yeah, the girls that get Get it, it. but it's also (laughs) so there's also such a breadth to it. And it's like you might miss this very specific Croydon reference. You might not get that, but you'll get this reference to, you know, I don't know, like a Gavin and Stacey episode. Like she'll bring those two worlds together and have a conversation about a particular thing happening on the internet right now. So I've always, always admired her for that. And I remember one of the first times we actually met in this industry, I was just like, yo, I love your comment pieces. Like, you're sick. That's the other thing. I'm a fangirl out loud. I tell everybody, especially, like, fellow black women, because I don't know, that might be the first time you're hearing that today, or that might be the thing that you need to carry on going if you were thinking about quitting. If I'm a fan of yours, I will tell you straight up. And what's a piece of feedback that you've, been given by an editor that you've held close to you that's kind of helped you throughout your career two one is that point about succinctness which I don't think I've been that succinct as far as my explanations ironically (laughs) um that and that was because coming into journalism because I was not trained as a journalist I came in still on a writing I was very much setting the scene and talking I was writing with a almost literary lens like writing like a novelist okay. and I remember my first editor was like to me really nice really cool but no, no. <laughs> but no like how did listen, you take that? I took it well because I I had gone in there with the assumption that I'm shit anyway so okay. any everything you say is going to be a value like I'm here to learn like I'm a part imposter but more than anything, I'm a sponge. So you, you, more times with learning, I always tell people, you only have to tell me once. And I'm like on it. I'm like, cool, got you, got you, got you. There was no pushback. There was, no, there was nothing to talk about. This is the news editor telling me something. I'm not a trained... So I'm taking everything that she said. Um, and the second piece is keep the receipts. So I'm quite a meticulous person as far as being organisational. And like, there's a method because you never know when you might get dragged to court. <laughs> that's the reality of it you never know who you're going to report on and who might drag you to court and guess what they can ask for every email you sent about them every slack message every whatsapp message every post-it note do you have a diary where you write about them? they want all of that stuff so keep a meticulous account more, especially with contentious stories but if you make a habit of just doing that with stories in general when it becomes like bigger stories about public figures and stuff like that it's easier what's a story that you still want to tell I mean, I'm really curious right now about, like, uh, the, one of the big conversations is AI. I'm in particular, particularly, I'm always quite curious why, when it comes to things like this, it seems like cosplaying as black people seems to be, like, the testing ground for this. You know, when we talk about the collateral in this, like, some of these things, the developers or the people who are working on the back end are in, like, Nairobi and or at, and stri- on strike currently, I believe, was a story that I read a few weeks ago. I'm always curious about how tech relates with race and gender and that intersection and culture. And I think AI has presented a new frontier. And I'm definitely interested in talking about it from a black perspective. Like, what does it say? Shudu's not necessarily a AI, but she is the fictitious, she's the imagination of a white man and this is a digital influencer that has like hundreds of thousands of followers isn't a real person but it is the image of a black woman and somebody's making money from that it's kind of creepy what's the best and hardest part about being a black writer 
the best, I would say, is just the sheer fact that I think we're a lot more self-aware. I think we operate, more so if you're a black writer in a white society, we walk through the world with heightened level of self-awareness, I think, because sometimes it's what will keep you alive. It's what will keep you in a job. You know, whether it's like you're walking through certain areas and you're like, hmm, your, your, your spidey senses start to tingle and is someone following me or, or you're in a shop and a security guard, I've already peeped through from my left corner. <laughs> I know you're already watching me. But just, I think, yeah, I think we have a heightened level of self-awareness. So, and I think it works in our favour. Sometimes, it's a thin line. It can definitely fall into the part of detriment. But I do think when we're in certain spaces, especially in the workplace, um, it's crazy to see how other people act and complete lack of self-awareness. And you're like, well, damn, like you just, you you grew up so different. <laughs> That you're not even aware of how you sound right now in this room full of people. But because we've grown up and been there, there has always been that expectation or we've just had to consistently be, be self-aware where we, we really take that time to... who We look at our environment. Who are my allies here? Who should I be weary of? Where's a good place to sit? We, I think we just assess all of that stuff. But similarly, that can be one of the challenges. Sometimes we don't get to just walk into spaces freely, free as a bird, uninhibited by all the other bullshit. Has there ever been a story that you've had to push back on in terms of your editor's commissioned you to write it and you'd be like, no, sorry, (laughs) I'm not writing that. (laughs) Has that ever happened to you? And if so, how have you gone about doing that? Yes. There have been a couple, actually. For the most part, I'm just... I, again, I've in time I've become much more confident in pushing back on certain things. But um, stories around like wanting you to write something critical of like a Beyonce or of a Nicki Minaj, or sometimes you know these two white influencers who you know nothing about and have no interest in, they want you to somehow get in there and write a comment. No. Like sometimes it's just as simple as I have no skin in the game or it's like I'm not going to put myself, my well-being or my welfare at risk. Like in one case, we know one rapper's fan base notoriously docks journalists regularly. And it's like I'm not for like a couple million hits. I genuinely don't care to have my address. Yeah, it's never that serious. Like I don't have a strong perspective on this. If I did, I'd write it and hold it like hold your L's. If you do something, stand by it. So if I'm going to write this piece, I'm going to write it because I want to write it and I will hold whatever the repercussions are. I'm not going to write it because you think I'm the best person to write it because I'm the black girl in the newsroom and you think I've got so many snazzy things to say and then potentially risk my family being doxxed, me being doxxed, having my DMs. Like I've written about the manosphere multiple times but and they've I've had email abuse but I don't care because I stand by what I'm reporting in that like you can't you actually can't insult me enough to make me stop if I think that this is dangerous and I genuinely am committed to telling that story I can hold the repercussions off of that because then that lets me know know I'm doing something right but in other spaces for a couple measly clicks I do not care and I'm not going to be the person that's going to write it and I articulate that to whoever's commissioned it and thankfully everyone's super sensitive enough to know that don't push me any harder on this it's not gonna work so where's your confidence come from time I think as well just very early on 
seeing the power of advocating for yourself. I was sort of bullied when I was like in primary school, really, really young. And then I think one summer, I you find your voice. Like you go from Simba, the, the cub, to the big lion and you're like, nah. And when you grow up the way I grew up, it was one. It was definitely an eat or be eaten, which sounds so sad and so animalistic when you think about it. But when I'm from South, so yeah, you really had to pipe up and speak up for yourself. And then in the workplace, my first real working environments were also black. So there was a moment there where there was nervousness around like, around that. At that time, it was age. Yeah, it was an age thing. I, I had a former colleague tell me that I should call her auntie. At work? Yeah. Oh, come on. She was Nigerian. <laughs> come on. Everybody else is calling her by her name. She's not going to listen to this, but like, I remember the day because everybody else was like, don't let her talk to you like that. And I was, I remember I just laughed it off because I was like, that's hilarious. Because <laughs> she, she was like, oh, you're Nigerian. You should be calling me auntie. And I was like, but you're not my aunt. Auntie. Yeah, auntie. like when we're in the workplace, like everybody here is calling <laughs> you by your name. But because of me, I'm the only other Nigerian. I should call you auntie. Um, but it was like for moments like that, when I'm like, Piper, they're like, don't let her talk to you like that. And I was like, and I remember like, you're not my aunt. So I'm not going to call you auntie. If that's a problem, that's absolutely fine. We don't need to talk. But little situations like that, you you actually, what nobody's going to beat you when it's all said and done. Nobody's going to beat you. Sometimes sticking it on people, especially, is quite funny because you see how red they go in the face. And guess what? They'll never do it again. I promise you that. They won't try you again if you let them know that, that, that one time. Rather than, like I said before, eating shit, like consistently. <laughs> You're only doing yourself. Yeah. So... Yeah, the confidence came with just knowing, hey, I'm good at my job. You're not going to beat me. And let's set the tone from now. The final section oh, is called the advice you give. Yes. And this is just basically the advice you give to other black writers based on the lessons you've learned, your own experiences, and even things that maybe you would have done differently if you could go back. So mm. what advice would you give to other black writers? Find your allies, find your advocates the people who will stand alongside you. If you want to be in this industry for a long time, there is no honour in saying, like, I know some people want to rap about how they did it on their own and da da, da. You're not a rapper. Yeah. You want to be a writer. Yeah. You can ghostwrite a rap, but I promise you, even those opportunities only come by allies and advocates. Find yourself some allies and advocates and be invested in them and they'll invest, be invested in you. Don't just link up with people from a like a vapid place because I do see some people do that. They want to do do up squad because this person is like they're popping. No, find them people that are genuinely in the trenches like you and you can have honest conversations where it's like, yo, I have not been paid on this invoice for X amount of days. I am so poor right now. And you can sit, have those conversations and feel no way about it. Um, you got to be gutsy. This industry does not favour wallflowers, or the people that don't pipe up is what I've seen. That it, you actually have to be gutsy and, and and advocate for yourself, and really speak up and back your ideas. Commit to being a good person. It's so so severely underrated because I think we've now come to this place where it's generally accepted or we're kind of okay with the idea that this industry is full of like nasty people. But I know that I don't forget that. I don't forget the people that have made me feel bad in this industry or who've been nasty. So it won't be forgotten if you're that way as well. I do remember the people who made me feel good. 
and who supported me and who stood by me. Invest in being that person more than thinking, oh, because this industry is like this, I've also got to get nasty or I've got to be wicked and all of those. You don't have to leave Abandon, walk away from the witch life and just no it's <laughs> true choose a different path like if you if you know you've got witch tendencies leave them reserve those for smoky days I get it <laughs> sometimes you actually have to be that way inclined but it's better to have a reputation of being just a nice person than anything else and yeah show and prove Ada is full of wisdom and is so generous with it. It was so lovely speaking to another black woman who just gets it. I hope our conversation has given some useful insight for anyone looking to get into journalism. Please be sure to follow on social media at Sincerely Ade. And thank you to you two for downloading and listening to this episode right to the end. If you've enjoyed it, share it with at least one black writer that you know and let me know what you think using the hashtag Black Prose Podcast. And follow us on social media too at Black Prose Pod. I appreciate you guys. Bye. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. <laughs> to be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.